love riding my bike. I love running. I don't care what they think about it. I love it. At that point, when I knew I was going to win, chills just went up and down my entire body. I don't believe there are any good or bad foods. Food is food. I still feel so passionate about getting that record that I'm like, I'm just going to do it. As an athlete, I was like, what's my story or what's your story? What can you learn from it? And what can you teach people? Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm here with my co-host and fellow professional triathlete, Haley Chura. Haley, how are you today? What's going on? Alyssa, I'm amazing today, like truly amazing. It has been three sunny days in a row in Bozeman, like bright blue sky, not a cloud in the sky. There were a few clouds today, but it was like the temperatures are probably too warm for mid-February, but... I have been wearing shorts to walk cowboy. And Whoa, so that's like not even running. Yeah. When you're running in shorts, right? Because you're, you, you, um, I can generate some heat when I run. <laughs> but walking is a different, a different animal. And I walked cowboy in shorts today, which is just, I mean, again, long term, probably not good, but short term, I enjoyed it so much. Got some vitamin D, which from inside tracker results, I know I need. So it, uh, it, I'm in like a super good mood. You know, Olympics have been going on. I even love the Super Bowl. It's just like everything is, it just seems like things are going really well. So I'm just riding this wave. How are you? I love that, Haley. I love it. I actually, I meant to get together some more Olympic trivia to give you this week. And then I totally dropped the ball on that. So listeners, don't get excited. There is no trivia other than Haley. I am on the road right now. I am not in my current, my normal. Where are you? So I'll give you a hint. This is your trivia question. I am in the state that had, oh no, you, no. We, you know where I am. You know I'm in Tennessee. <laughs> so I don't Wait, that was right. the worst but trivia I still, ever. I, know, I still have a trivia question. I still have a trivia okay. question. Okay. What is the state bird of Tennessee? <laughs> the woodpecker? I don't know. <laughs> Close. That's probably, I mean, that was a good guess. I feel like I heard a woodpecker today, actually. Um, a mockingbird, a northern mockingbird. Oh, no, just a mockingbird, I think. So that's kind of fun. Like piece okay. of uh, I mean, I was gonna say like a volunteer, but that's not uh, a bird. <laughs> All I think of is like Tennessee volunteers, yeah. you know, because I'm that pool. But um, what are you doing in Tennessee? I mean, I assume you're not like. Uh, are you in Nashville? Are you are you doing some country music? Yeah, me and, like, me and what? Swift. She just heard that I officially became her number one fan by keeping that album on repeat, and it was like fast track to T Swift's house. No. <laughs> So Haley, for the, I've talked about this a little, like very, our biggest Iron Women super fans will have heard me drop this from very brief tidbit from time to time that over the last four years now, I have been trying to get into the Barkley marathons, which many I'm sure our listeners know. Um, If you don't, if you haven't heard of it, you can search on Netflix for the little documentary movie about it. It's like pretty dated now, but it'll give you a good insight into what it exactly it's called, is. Wait, isn't that documentary called The Race That Eats Its Young? It's either called, <laughs> yeah, it is called that. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Are you the young? <laughs> so it gives you insight. Yes. Um, I am trying to aspiring, be aspiring. I've been aspiring young to be eaten. Yes. Um, for four years now. And each it's, it's been a roller coaster for years in, 2020, when the pandemic hit, I actually got in for like two days. And then he decided to, he ultimately decided to cancel the whole race. But like then, and he, he is honored. okay. In case someone hasn't oh, seen yeah. the documentary, yeah, who is yeah. he? How long is it? I need a little bit of a, a so brief he reminder. Is, he goes by Lazarus Lake. That's like his 
trail name, I guess you could say, right? It's like pseudo. What's that when people have like this is the race director, race yeah, the race director. Oh, his His alibi. Wait, is that right? My brain is a little bit dead right now, but like it's his alter ego. The alter ego. Yes, his real name is Gary Cantrell. He is notorious in the ultra running world for coming up with races such as this one, the Barkley Marathons. Big's backyard ultra where you run like 4.2 miles or whatever on the hour, every hour, as long as you can. Um, he has a race where you run across the state of Tennessee, um, like literally just across the state of Tennessee, unsupported. I think the people can do it supported, but like the real race is unsupported and it's literally 500 kilometers or something insane in July in Tennessee. So he has these very um, notorious in the ultra running world races. They're all just like a little, they're not standard races. The Barkley Marathons involves um, on and off trail racing to that also required like the trail is not marked for you. The course is not marked. He gives basically a verbal or a written outline of course description with like some navigation stuff, some just kind of like what he says you try and execute. Um, and you're racing to books that he has put in the woods. You take a page out of the book to like prove you've been there. So it's a very um kind of like a cult in ultra running following with this race and the people who are trying to get in and the people who get in year after year and yada yada so I how far wait how far is uh, it so the rate Barkley is five loops um of it's allegedly 100 miles but everyone knows that each loop is actually more like 25 or 26 miles with I think he's saying this year the loops are like really I mean more than ever like over 10,000 feet of elevation gain it's going to, it's like pretty pretty crazy um and the the ideal world would be to finish all five loops but I think only 15 people um 15 men have finished in the I don't know 30 years or so that the race has been going on um no woman has yet to go one woman has gone out on a fourth loop and she did not finish that fourth loop. So that's the furthest that a woman has ever gone in this race. And I'm just like, I've been knocking at the door, ready to change this, Haley, for a few years here. And it has been a roller coaster because it's a process to enter. I have been on the wait list for these several years. And it's like, I have been mentally structuring the things I've been doing around, will I get off the wait list? Will I not? Can I pivot from what I'm doing to be able to get myself fit enough if I get off the wait list and that? This year, I finally felt close enough to getting in that from the get-go, I have been training like I could be racing, and I'm still on the wait list. Everyone listening, still on the wait list, not currently actually in yet this year, but it is really close, and there is a chance. There's a pretty good chance, how many, so. How many people race? 40. 40 every year. So okay. not a lot of racers. Um, and when do you find out if you get off the wait list? Are you going to like travel to, I mean, are you in, I, I don't think it starts this week. This seems a little early. So this is a training, training thing. This is this not is like being yeah. on call in case you get called up. The conch shell blows and they're like, Oh, we only have 39. Where's Alyssa. <laughs> I asked if I would be able to do that and basically said no. So basically like within reasonable travel time and like prep time. Right. So a few days out, probably he might be in touch and be like, can you get down here reasonably? Yes or no. Cause like once you're called off the wait list, that's your chance you go or you're like basically done. Right. So if I get called, I need to be like prepared to go. And in my mind, I'm prepared to go like on very, very short notice. So it is, I can't give race details, but um, if you watch the documentary, you get to learn more about when the race usually is and things like that. And it's, 
it's exciting. So I feel like I'm super fit right now, Haley, which is really exciting. Um, I'm here. You can come down to frozen head state park in Tennessee, which is where the race is. You're allowed to train on trail. So you're not allowed to do any training on your own really off of trail in the park, um, to explore, but I have been doing a couple loops. I, I coach an athlete who actually lives a couple hours away in Tennessee and I was super excited. Kat actually came in for the last few days. So I've had some company running around the trails here in frozen head and we've just been having a really good time. Um, there was snow on the trail though, Haley, 16 hours South of New Hampshire and there was still snow on the trails. <laughs> what do you think of the trails? What do you, how do they compare? I mean, are they really gnarly? They're so the trails themselves, I would call them like, I don't know, medium technical to actually not technical in a lot of places, but the difficulty definitely comes from the like geology, geography, I don't know, land structure of this state park. It is crazy. Like out of nowhere, these little mountains appear and you get so much up and down in a short span of time in this park that it's pretty crazy what you can put together. So like the kind of the big loop that people will do when they come here training is about 20 miles or so. And you get like 6,800 feet of elevation in, in that time. Um, and it's just always up and down, like there is no flat. So, um, it's just, it's a different kind of training getting ready for this, but, um, it's, you know, it's, it's similar training to things I've done for like the long trail and the Adirondacks and things like that. And the trails, like, it's just, it is beautiful here. Like rural Tennessee is a, a pretty, uh, amazing place. And when you're up kind of at the, the top lookout tower, you can see to the smoky mountains and it's really pretty. Um, so it's a good little secret training destination too. So if, if nothing are, else, I'll be fit, very fit after being here. Are there are a lot of other people out there training. So I run into two other, other male, um, men, I guess, racing, and they are both officially in for this year. So people are out and about definitely scoping it out, definitely training, um, on, I think just the more you have your bearings, like even if you can't train off the trail, you can just kind of get familiar with the area, which is really helpful in case you get really lost during the race. You'll hopefully be able to get yourself unlost. That is, that does sound like a key when you're doing the race that eats its young. <laughs> well, cool. I hope we get to like, I, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that your training goes well. And then you get off that wait list and you get like confirmation and we can like, you know, blow it up here on the podcast because that is uh, exciting to have yeah. you in it. <laughs> Thanks Haley. Yes. Super, super excited. Um, Haley, I'm also super excited because we have a, a mailbag question this week. Are you, are we oh, ready for right. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to answer some questions. Okay. So our mailbag question this week is from Jill. Jill's from Connecticut and she was listening to a recent show where Haley talked about doing most of her running on treadmills and that when she runs on treadmills though, she finds it feels like she has an electric assist because the belt helps her run faster. Everything's good. But then she tries to hit the road and her pace worsens. She says by about a minute per mile. So eight minutes per mile on a treadmill is like nine minutes on the pavement for Jill. So have we had this experience? Do we have tips for getting treadmill running to be better to like better simulate the roads? Jill, I, I don't have that problem. I actually have the opposite. I find 
that I can run faster on a dry road than, you know, a flat dry road than I can on the treadmill. But I will say it depends on the treadmill. So that is the big thing is that not all treadmills are created equal. I think that the treadmills that I typically run on run a little bit slow, how they're calibrated, just based off of what I've been able to do on the treadmill. And then maybe like a track, which I think would be a little bit probably more similar to a treadmill. I mean, a, a treadmill is great that it, you don't have stops. It is a softer surface. You, uh, controlled terrain, everything is very controlled. Um, so one of the things I would suggest for you, because it doesn't really matter. Like, I don't know if that, like, that's kind of even what I think of when I run on the treadmill, like the pace is a guide, but what matters is the effort. And so I pretty much always wear a heart rate monitor and that gives me kind of a different number to look at than necessarily the pace. And so I will do tempo runs, um, are, you know, one of my favorite exercises to do on the treadmill is like do like a tempo run. And I don't even try to hit a specific pace. I hit it, try to hit a specific heart rate range. And that is, um, and I'll just adjust the treadmill pacing to whatever that heart rate range is, because again, I'm trying to hit a specific effort. And so do I get a little bit attached to that number? Yes. I mean, I'm only human. Like then I see the number. Um, but I think I know that it is just a number. What I'm going for is this training stimulus. And then hopefully when I, you know, get out on the road, I have a guide, you know, based off of heart rate and based off of, uh, what paces I was running of like kind of whereabouts I'd be. But I mean, a lot of triathlons are different kinds of terrain. And I think that I don't, I, I mean, knowing that heart rate and knowing that perceived exertion and, um, kind of knowing a range of what I can run at seems to work for me. So, um, I'm not totally tied to a specific number. Cause I'll say like when I, <laughs> I think when I run indoors versus when I run outdoors, it's almost like I run in snow a lot outside. So it's probably double the pace that I'm running on the treadmill. It's like not even comparable, but during the summer, when I do some stuff outside on the track or on a flat road, um, you know, I find that I actually think it's a little bit faster for me, but I get really hot too. And so that's like a limiting factor for me on the treadmill. And so I bring my own fan, but that's a story for another day. Does that, does that help at all? I guess also like what, you know, when you're doing this too, like if you run consistently on the same treadmill, like that also helps because you know that, okay, maybe it is a, a fast looking time, but it's always fast and you know that, and you're getting that training stimulus. So it doesn't really matter the actual pace. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I think you wrapped it up very nicely. I think treadmills, especially if you're using one at a gym, who knows what's going on with that treadmill? When's the last time it was calibrated? That sort of thing. So definitely going on perceived effort and or heart rate and things like that is the key. And then just like scaling accordingly, right? Like similar to how people's power meters often give different numbers, right? And so you just kind of know what yours is on that machine with those things, right? And then you kind of adjust from there um, for, for other stuff. So I think, you know, use the treadmill as a tool to help get your turnover going faster, right? Like think about that cadence moving faster so that when you are outside, you can think about trying to get your legs moving as if they were on that belt with that assist. I think that's like definitely something I visualize sometimes when I'm really trying to pick up my speed. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, I don't think you want to you wanna get super attached to those numbers because unfortunately they aren't always like a one-to-one -one comparison. It's just different running. Um, it's almost like a different sport. So um, great question though. Uh, 
Jill from Connecticut. Thank you so much for sending it in. And to our listeners, you can always send in questions to the mailbag at ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And just a quick reminder too, we always are grateful for our partners and we are sponsored by Orca and you can use the code ironwomen15 for 15% off at orca.com. If you are gearing up for racing season and things like that, wetsuit shopping, um, you know, goggles, accessories. I think they have a towel poncho that we really like. Those, those swim buoys. I love the swim buoys. Yeah. Yes. Lots of good stuff. Orca.com, Iron Women 15 for 15% off there. Yeah. And Alyssa, I mean, are we ready to introduce our guest? Does Ooh. our guest need an introduction? She doesn't, but we should roll out the red carpet and give her a little introduction anyway. <laughs> red carpet is appropriate. Blue carpet. I mean, we definitely need to roll out a carpet because this week we are talking to the Tokyo 2020 Olympic champion. I mean, she's the gold medalist. Flora Duffy. And um, I mean, Flora was also the world champion in 2016, 2017, and 2021. She was actually the first woman, first, I think she was the first person to be the world champion and Olympic champion in the same year. Um, and then she's still the only woman to have accomplished that so far. And um, she did do that just this past year, but she was also the uh, 2018 Commonwealth Games champion. She's a six-time Xterra off-road world champion, which she also won in 2021. So she has been on a roll, folks. And um, we're really excited to talk to Flora. She helps, um, you know, helps walk us through that incredible race in Tokyo last summer, which if anyone's been watching the Olympics, you'll get the chills all over again. And um, tells us more about just her her progression in the sport and what she feels like she still would like to accomplish uh, in the future. So we'll have that conversation with Flora right after the break. Hi, Flora. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hi. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And to start this interview, I do need to double check on how to properly address you because were you just made a dame? <laughs> yes, I was. Um, it's kind of sounds so over the top, but uh, yeah, just Flora is fine. Yes. <laughs> I feel like we should say Dame Flora Duffy at least once. We'll say it in the intro. And again, I just did it. I just had to. I mean, that's kind of exciting. I know it is. I was, um, so where was I? Oh, I was actually in Maui. It was the week of the Xterra Worlds. The governor of Bermuda emailed me or her secretary did um, and to say, oh, Flora, the governor um, you know, she would like to arrange a call with you. And I was like, okay. Um, so anyway, the next day we had a call, I'm like, you know, getting ready for worlds in Maui. And, uh, yeah, that's when she told me the news that my name was being put forward. Um, and it was going to be announced on the new year's honors list. So I had to keep it secret for about a month. Um, and then, yeah, it was definitely kind of surreal and strange and, um, yeah, pretty special. So we'll see if, uh, I don't know, because I know other dames like Dame Kelly Holmes, um, the British runner, like that's always said with her name now. And like even for sirs, like that's also always said. So I'm like, oh, but I don't know. I haven't officially received the the title, I say. So, um, yeah, I think you should just go with it and start just using it all that. I mean, I definitely for we have a very American centric listener base. So can you kind of explain the honor a little bit for our American listeners? Oh, my gosh. Um, 
<laughs> now you're really putting me on the spot to like actually break down the details, but essentially, um, these you don't are, have to get it all I right because like, we yeah. probably won't fact check you okay. on this. So your best, your best explanation would be good. Okay, yeah. So it is all, um, yeah, very based in British history, and so these are honors bestowed upon you by, I guess, well, since the Queen is um, the head of the British family at the moment, so um, honors from from her, and so I was nominated through my services for sport in Bermuda by our governor. So you are nominated for, I go essentially, I guess, achieving excellence in whatever um, sector you're in. And the Dame, Dame and Sir are sort of the highest levels. And then there's a few levels down. So I'm currently in OBE, um, which I was awarded after the Commonwealth Games. And then because of my gold at the Olympics, I um, have been, yeah, nominated to be a Dame. Um, and also on those New Year's honors list were the um, four from the British triathlon relay, mixed relay team. They were, they received um, an MBE, which I should look up exactly what that means. I should know these things. Remember but anyway, British so Empire. British Empire, yes. <laughs> so anyway, they're kind of like cool, like, I don't know. We'll fact check ourselves yeah. in the outro or something yeah. for us. Hopefully I kind of explained that somewhat. Okay. Um, I got it. It's a big deal. And I mean, it's a big, it's a big deal, deal for, for you, but for the sport of triathlon to have a triathlete, mm-hmm. I feel like recognized at this highest level, I think is really cool. And I think um, it's, it's just, it's great that you're getting the recognition because you have had some incredible excellence during your career. And before we get to that, I just wanted to just kind of ask on less exciting news. Um, like so many people around the world, you recently posted about getting COVID. How are you feeling? Mm-hmm. How is your recovery going? Yeah, so I did. I got COVID almost basically as soon as I landed back here in South Africa. Um, so I guess the first week of January sometime, um, I picked it up. And I, I am vaccinated. Um, I wasn't able to get my booster yet, which um, I don't know, maybe if I had my booster, I, I wouldn't have picked it up. Who knows? Anyway, um, I yeah, I did get COVID. I was knocked down for like three or four days um, in bed with just kind of typical light flu symptoms, you know, chills, hot, cold, achy, had a headache and just all around felt pretty exhausted. It was just kind of sleeping, um, for those three or four days. My husband, Dan also thinks he got it, but he was like pretty much fine. He didn't feel great, but was like able to kind of like, you know, operate. He wasn't going to work, but like he could work from home was fine. Whereas I was like down and out in bed. Um, and so then that was at the end of my six weeks that I took off. And I really took the six weeks off because I was like kind of over travel by the end of last year. So I enjoyed that break and then got COVID. And then, um, re- yeah. And then so my return to training has been very, very slow, very gradual. I really had to watch my heart rate, the amount of volume I t- was doing. Um, so my coach definitely was very strict on what I could and could not do and gave me um, – you know, exact guidelines to follow. Um, so it's definitely been, I mean, it's kind of frustrating, uh, but at the same time, like I really would do the tiniest bit of training. I'd be like so tired and just go back to sleep. Um, now I'm like three and a half weeks post. And so I'm feeling way better now, like totally fine. And I'm able to start building into some more training. Um, 
which is nice. And so it sounds like, I mean, I guess it's kind of like good and bad, right? It came at the end of a break. So it's not like it derailed, you know, a huge block that you were really in the middle of and kind of eager to keep going with. But what was your Mm -hmm. like mental strategy? You know, like the new year brings all kinds of feelings to people anyway, right? So it's like new year, you're just coming off a break, ready to probably start to get going again, or were you right? Like, what was your mental strategy for kind of being like, oh, it's going to be at least another week, if not two, three, right? Before yeah. you're really feeling back like normal self again. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, it's funny. I was, I was thinking about that quite a lot because if this had happened a year before the start of 2021 in an Olympic year, I would have been freaking out, like losing my mind um, and just, yeah, really struggling. But I don't know. For me, I kind of almost started this year before I got COVID in a totally different mental space, like just such a lightness because the Olympic build and the Olympics is done. So this year, even regardless of, oh yeah, I'm starting this year with COVID and I'm really unfit and I'm like kind of a little bit behind where I thought I would be. Like, it's like, oh, it's no worries. It's not an Olympic year. Um, That's all done. And just kind of, I don't know. I think it's taking some quiet confidence from the past year and, all the years building up to the Olympics that um, a few weeks isn't going to like derail my whole season. Um, and if anything, slowing me down and holding me back is fine. So it, in a way I was, I was um, yeah, able to stay pretty positive through it and just kind of roll with it. And at the same time, like almost everyone's going to go through this at some point. It depends, you know, how COVID hits you. It's really individual, but it's almost just part of, um, it's just yeah, part of life right at the moment. And so we are recording this just before the winter Olympics in Beijing. And we know you're a summer Olympian, but we are glad that you're here to help kind of indulge our Olympic fever. And we would love to reminisce about that incredible day in Tokyo last summer. So the first question I just kind of have logistically, like the women race the day after the men. And I'm curious if you watch the men's race at all to get a feel for how your own race might play out. Yes, I did. So yeah, the men raced um, on the Monday. Well, Monday, Japan time. Wait, I shouldn't even do days because I'm going to get myself confused. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the men raced the day before we did. And I was staying in a hotel just by the triathlon venue. So from my window, I could see the pontoon and the swim course. So I got up, I got like the um, streaming all set up on my laptop. But then I watched the swim from my window. And so I saw like the, like, at first I didn't realize what the false start was going on. I was just like, wow, that's a really small field. And then quickly saw, you know, the whole like going back, restarting. Oh, it actually makes me nervous thinking about it. Um, but watching the men's race start was the most nervous I was the entire time because it was real. It was like, that is me tomorrow. Like I'm going to be standing on that pontoon and racing for gold. Like it's here. Um, so that really freaked me out. Um, and I was alone in my hotel room because Dan, he'd gone down to, to the race venue to just, you know, check it all out. Um, so then I was just like there alone, just like, oh my gosh, that's me tomorrow. Um, but then I quickly regained composure and, uh, yeah, then enjoyed watching the rest of the race. And so, you know, when we're watching at home, I don't know if it's editing or whatever, but it's, it's easy to kind of assume that the execution of the Olympic events is like, 
fairly flawless, right? But you mentioned the false start. Tokyo did seem a little bit kind of less than perfect. So we saw the media boat get in the way of that that men's start. There was a weather delay for the women, quite a few crashes and really variable weather during the race. So, you know, watching that false start, was that a reminder to yourself to like about staying focused and how to recenter, you know, in the middle of the race when these things are going on, what are you doing to kind of stay calm amidst mm-hmm. all that chaos? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's actually funny. I've never been involved in a false start. And so I couldn't imagine if that was my first time doing a false start at the Olympics. Um, yeah, it, it, it would definitely take, you know, a lot of focus and controlling your mind space in that moment to get reset to go again. Um, I think one of the biggest hurdles I had race week, or I, I could probably say most women would have had, is that on our briefing, at our briefing two days before our race, we were told that a typhoon was passing Tokyo and there was a possibility that our race could be delayed two days. Oh. So that, <laughs> now that oh. is not what you want to hear at the Olympics. <laughs> So, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. And the decision was going to be made at 5 p.m. on Sunday, the day of the briefing. So our briefing was Sunday morning. By Sunday evening, they would make a decision. So obviously you're spending all Sunday just like, oh, my gosh, am I racing in two days time or is it four days time? And, you know, when you've had your precise taper and you've known about this date for, well, quite a while at that point, given the year of postponement, those two extra days would have made like a massive difference, I think, to many people's mental and emotional states. Um, so yeah, just processing that, just rolling with the punches um, and just knowing, you know, just, I guess, going back to um, thinking about all of my preparation that I was in a confident space, I had great form, I could execute regardless of whatever day it was going to be, whatever time, whatever the conditions were going to be, just to be confident in my abilities. Um, and anyway, sure enough, we did race on the scheduled race day. Uh, but again, I woke up, we started, we started at, well, we were meant to start at 6.30 a.m. We started at 6.45 a.m. because there was a 15-minute delay. But when I woke up at 3, it was just like rain lashing the window wind just like you looked out the window you're like oh my god what am I gonna race in um it's the complete opposite conditions of what I prepared for we prepared for you know sunny hot humid exactly what the men had and then ours was complete opposite I mean mind you it was still humid and it was still warm but it wasn't that like 85 to 90 Fahrenheit we were expecting it was more like 75 to 80 um still humid but it was windy and raining. And so we had all sorts of like cooling stuff for me to use before the race, you know, ice vests, um, slushies, wet towels, ice. And then none of that was used. In fact, I was like putting like um, dry towels all over me. I had Dan's big jacket on me. I had my shoes on. And I walked out with all of that onto the pontoon and literally took it off with a minute to go because I didn't want to get cold. And I, and, and it was like, in like no point in our preparation did I think about being cold on the start line at the Olympics in Tokyo in the summer. So it's just like so many different things just switched up and changed. And you just had to really just, 
adapt as it all um, was happening. Um, and thankfully for me, I've been to a few Olympics. I've raced at many high-level events. Um, I have a lot of experience. So I was able to use all of that um, just to manage all of the different changing factors um, as the hours kind of went on leading to the race. But for in Tokyo, you came out of the water in a group of seven women that broke away during the swim. And all of the medalists ended up coming from that group. So about six weeks before Tokyo, you raced in Leeds where you finished fourth. And I guess in that race, you noticed, you noticed a weakness in your swim. So can you talk to us about like racing in Leeds, what you learned and how you were able to make the necessary changes to your swim in just over a month? Yeah. So the, the between Leeds and the Olympics, I think was about seven, seven weeks, maybe six weeks, six weeks. Um, so yeah, at Leeds, I, it's funny. The swim is so fast now in, in women's, um, world triathlon racing. And I actually came out of the water, I think like 10, which is typically not bad, but because that first, um, I guess it was about six of them. You had Jessica Claremont, Lucy Charles, uh, Maya Kingma, whatever. They were just off like rockets. And coming out of the water 10th was just not good enough. Mind you, I did have some bad luck. It was the first time ever I dove in and immediately just had arms on me and just got pulled back, hit, dunked. Like I've never had that happen to me in a, in a ITU race before. And in one sense, it was a bit of like um, a shock and a little worrying because that was my race for the podium over because the, the swim was so fast at the front that like I eventually had to find some clear water and then I did swim up to the I guess second little chase group behind the four that were gone but the race was gone right and I was like what if this happens to me in Tokyo like I can be in excellent form but you just have some weird bad luck where you just get swum over and hit and dunked which can happen when 60 women are starting and going to the same boy um so yeah, anyway, that definitely scared me and maybe like over scared myself. I don't know if that makes sense to then really focus on my swimming um, in that time between Leeds and Tokyo. Um, and yeah, I just made a few changes, particularly working on my takeout speed. Um, that's kind of, I guess, one of my weaknesses. So really doing a lot of VO2 work in the pool. Um, yeah, really just, yeah, working on your VO2, settling into threshold. It's not that much fun, but um, that's ITU racing. And if you can't do that, then I knew I wasn't, I wasn't going to be in the mix for the medals because I knew in Tokyo the swim was going to be on. It would split up. And depending on who was in that front group, I had a pretty good idea. It was going to be very hard for that chase group to bridge up. So I just knew I had to be in that front group. And I was very nervous for the swim in Tokyo. I was like, I just have to get there. And then, yeah, sure enough, I had a great swim and I felt very comfortable. And I got to the first, either the first or second boy and I could look up and I could kind of tell I was seventh, I think seventh or sixth. And I could tell who the five or six women in front of me were, whose feet I was on. So Georgia's feet, I think Georgia was on Summer's feet. Summer might've been on Katie's feet and Jess. Yeah. So then I was like, okay, this is great. You just have to stay here. Um, and then when we got onto the bike and I heard the first split back to the chase group, I was like, that's it. This is the race. This is where the medals are coming from. 
now just stay on your bike because it's pouring down with rain, super slippery, lots of corners and lots of white lines. So, <laughs> and so, you know, going with that. So in the past, we have seen you make like a big solo move on the bike and in Tokyo, it looks like you kind of sat in a little bit more than you typically would. So was that a purposeful tactic based on the conditions of the day and you knowing kind of that chase group was, you know, pretty far out of it. So like playing it, not even safer, but a little bit, you know, not going to make that move quite as much. Yeah, I think for a few reasons. Yes. One, um, the bike course was very technical and slick and I just wanted to kind of get through it as safely as possible. And the second biggest reason is that I really can back my run now. So it was a 70 second gap. I didn't need, I, I no, I, yeah, I didn't need any more than that. I mean, I was also confident that if I came off the bike with everybody, I could, um, you know, pretty, yeah, confident I could run for um, a medal. So yeah, taking it into all that account, I was like, well, take your pulls as you need to, but you don't need to be aggressive. You don't need a bigger gap. You just need to be smart continue to, you know, take in your fuel because it is still, it is still hot and it is still humid and you're going to need to run a really good 10 K off of this. So just, yeah, I could just be strategic. Right. And it was kind of nice that I had a few cards to play. Um, and I didn't have to play my usual card of, um, trying to really push the bike and try to go off the front. Um, mind you, that's also gotten a lot harder because a lot of the women are a lot stronger and they also know that tactic. So, um, yeah, few reasons. When you're in a group like that, are you talking to each other and making sure everyone takes a turn with their pole at the front? Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> sometimes some can be, some people can be a little more vocal than others. Um, but so for example, in that group, it was myself, Georgia, Katie, and Jess, and we, and a few others, but us four, we've raced together off the front very often, all happy to take a pull all can or are immediately like committed right if we can see uh, one of us like within the first few meters of the bike it's just like on and we can just work together and have a common goal there's a few others that need a bit of encouragement um some gentle encouragement some more uh <laughs> aggressive encouragement uh so yeah there was a few women that were shouted at to take a pull in our group um, yeah, it doesn't have to be an aggressive, massive pull. You've just got to, you've got to do your turn, right? Um, so yeah, a few people definitely got shouted at and, uh, yeah, that's typically it. Maybe you get a bit of, bit of, um, abuse if you take a corner pretty dodgy or cut someone off. Uh, but yeah, I think that's all. I'm trying to like think back to the race. Yeah. <laughs> And so I think that you were third into transition, but you quickly found the front of the race and just kept building your lead from there. So you ended up running a 33 minute 10 K and finished more than a minute ahead of silver medalist, Georgia Taylor Brown. Do you remember what was going through your mind as you hit that blue carpet for the final time and ran towards the finish line? <laughs> um, to be honest, most of that moment was like way too big for me to take in. Like, I just think, you know, it's been years of hard work. It's been my whole like lifelong dream to accomplish winning an Olympic medal, never mind to win, win Olympic gold. And like here it was happening, like just like that almost. Um, so yeah, it was definitely special and surreal. And I can remember like, you know, consciously being like, 
at least in the last kilometer of the run being like you've got to really take this in flora but also being like i really want this to be over because i just need to cross this line because for the last like six or seven kilometers i've been trying to distract myself that i'm i'm not leading the olympics and i'm not likely to win gold you know like because by that time like the gap had been established i could tell how i was feeling like and then you're you're leading this race for i don't know however long and you're just like this this needs to be over because this is like really massive right and like i could feel that um so yeah it was definitely pretty special and really nice to look back at the photos and then just to i don't know some of the feelings and emotions um that come up and i think particularly when i look back at the photo of katie's running to the finish and i'm like jumping up like cheering for her really excited for her um and I don't know that that to me is just like such a goosebumps image. Like I um, definitely a really special moment to look back at that. Um, yeah, just a really cool, cool moment. I do love that photo of you, you know, jumping arms outstretched, really excited for an American to win bronze and <laughs> just about the kind of international camaraderie between the women who are racing the world championships triathlon series and the Olympic series, um, even though you have, you know, different countries on your front, you obviously still care about each other a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really nice bunch of women that are racing at the moment. Um, and I think we can all be very friend, you know, friends off the race course. We can be competitors on the race course in a, you know, a respectful way and be excited for one another when, um, a certain person wins and maybe you don't, regardless of their of your country, um, which is really special, especially we race at so many events around the world and spend so much time together. It's actually like really cool that we enjoy being around one another. Um, so yeah, then you saw at the Olympics, Katie, an American, Georgia, British, me from Bermuda. Um, yeah, and I was very excited for, for Georgia. And yeah, for Katie, both of them that I would call friends. Um, and so, yeah, that's like pretty special that, um, you know, your competitors and friends um, and yeah, can be excited for them regardless of what country you're from, uh, even, at a, you know, somewhere at the Olympics where it's very like country dominated. And Flora, in a recent article for your sponsor, Morton, I call it Morton. Maybe you can tell me if mm -hmm. it's Martin or something. Yeah, no, Morton. <laughs> I have always wondered that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a workout you did 10 days before the mm -hmm. Olympic triathlon in Tokyo that let you know you could win gold. So it sounds like one of those kind of confidence boosting sets that we all kind of keep close. Um, are you willing to, to share that workout? I am, I am, but I like can't fully remember all of the details of it. Um, but yeah, so 10 days out, I was doing a multiple brick workout. So it was bike run. The bike was about eight minutes long and the run was varying distances. So I did four rounds of that with four minutes rest in between. And on the bike, I had Dan, my husband, join me. And then um, one of my training partners, Joanna Brown, she was racing in Tokyo. Um, so we would pull turns and it would be pretty hard efforts. Um, kind of in and around, I guess what you would take race pace pulls, I guess. Um, but I can remember I was taking my pulls and it was on flat and Dan was like, geez, Flora, can you like relax a little bit? 
And I'm like, wow, that's weird. Cause usually like Dan's a pretty strong guy. He's, you know, used to race like on the flat when he's fit, I'm like, not really much of a match for him. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. And I was like, this is coming so like, feels so like comfortable and good. And then we got off and the first run was a kilometer and we're in Boulder. So we're at altitude and I ran it in 307. And I was like, oh, that's quite good. Like off of a hard bike. Um, and my training, and then so my other training partner, Chelsea Burns, was just doing the runs. And so she looked at her while she was like, geez, Flora, can we like chill out a little? Um, and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. And so then we four minutes rest and we did that again. And I think the run was a mile. I can't remember the time though. I can just remember like kilometer ones, but anyway, and then we did it two other times. And I remember like just each time the way I was just able to back it up. Um, and just, yeah, how I ran and how I was riding that, um, you know, I finished the workout and Dan, Chelsea and Joanna were like, she's, this girl is fit. Like, I think they definitely knew that day. And I, it's easy for me to look back and say I knew then, but I, I like allowed myself to know that, yes, whatever happens on the day, you've gotten yourself into the shape that it's possible to win an Olympic medal. And for me, that was quite comforting because it's been my lifelong dream to win a medal at the Olympics. And then it's kind of like, I knew I had that ability to, I don't know if that makes sense. Like whatever happened on the day, if there was a flat, a crash, like I had, I had gotten myself to that level, which I don't know, was really cool. And I could take um, a lot of confidence and comfort from that you put yourself in a position to win. That's all you can ask for, right? When you're sitting on the start line. I think that's that's so special. And I I want to ask a little bit more about that same article because it was titled Weight of a Nation. So I'm curious about the pressure to win Bermuda's first ever Olympic gold medal. Did that truly feel like a weight upon you? Um, yeah, d- definitely. Um, you, both on the side of, you know, it was Bermuda's first ever um, Olympic gold medal. We'd had our one other medal was from Montreal Olympics in 1976. So it had been a long time since there was a Bermudian with a very legitimate, as a favorite to win a medal. So I was very conscious of that. And then on the other side, or alongside of that, um, I had my own sort of pressures and expectations from, um, I guess, myself and just, I don't know, nearly everyone that's been in my, my circle or wherever I've trained or raced in the world. Like I'd been a favorite to win a medal in Tokyo for five years, the bonus year because of the pandemic, which is not fun, I will say. And there probably wasn't a day in 2020, 2021, maybe even 2019 that I wasn't like reminded about the Olympics and that I was going there to win a medal. And that was like, um, I don't know, my job almost. Um, so that's definitely something, and that's probably like one of the biggest pieces that I had to get right was just mentally and emotionally getting comfortable with that pressure and expectation. Um, because of course, you know, every time I went back to arena, that's what everyone wanted to talk about and how's my training going and am I getting excited for the Olympics and, you know, you know, Bermuda's first chance of a medal in a very long time. And so, yeah, you're, you're definitely very much aware that all of that is going on. And I think the biggest thing I learned to do between Rio and Tokyo 
is to be able to manage that and almost just kind of block it out. You know, it's like you knew it was there, but I can't really engage with it. I just need to focus in on just my training and keeping my mental and emotional state as happy as I can and um, just kind of knowing that's there Um, and try to turn it into a positive, almost of like, yes, like everyone back home, you know, has the expectation for me to win a medal and will be sitting there watching their TVs, watching me race. But just to know that like everyone there has my back and believes I can do it. And I think that was a really powerful shift for me is that like so many people believed that, I don't know, I could go there and win a medal. And yeah, that was pretty powerful. And on October 18th, 2021, Bermuda celebrated Flora Duffy Day. (laughs) Um, Corkscrew Hill, which was a prominent feature of the WTS race in Bermuda in 2018, was renamed Flora Duffy Hill. And of course, we mentioned you're now a dame. So does the recognition, you know, kind of make the ups and downs, especially like through the pandemic that, you know, one major, major down um, that you probably never would have foreseen coming? Like, does that help make it worth it? Or... You know, what is, how does it feel like to have now the recognition you deserve? Like, is that kind of fulfilling for you? Yeah, I think the, the recognition is, it is really nice. Um, it is, yeah, pretty amazing, like how much it, it meant to everybody. And um, yeah, the, the I guess, you know, having the hill named after me, the holiday, being a dame. And I think those are all like, that, that's all really nice and special. But I think for me, the Olympics was so personal, um, like such a personal dream. Like I have dreamed of this since I was like an eight year old doing my first triathlon. Um, and then to have reached that, it was very fulfilling regardless of what, um, you know, added extras I received along the way. Um, so yeah, in all in all, it's been very special. But I think for me, what um, I've enjoyed the most is hearing um, people's emotional response to me winning. And in a way that's like kind of beautiful, right? I guess if you can, you know, doing a triathlon and you can evoke an emotional response from somebody, it doesn't mean that they watch you often or really no triathlon, but can be moved by a performance. I, I don't know if that makes sense. Like that was kind of really special to hear um, so many accounts of where people were watching how they reacted, how they felt um, from all all walks of life, right? And from all corners of the world. I think that's just a, such a powerful thing about the Olympics that everyone tunes in to watch. And so, yeah, just the amount of people that reached out to me and, you know, said that they watched, like, I don't know. For me, that was kind of like the most special. Um, and I think also for me, I'm quite an introverted person. So when I went home to Bermuda, um, and it was, it was lots of celebrating and like, you know, like lots of spotlight on me. It was definitely so much for me to take in. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's also kind of weird at the same time, because you're like, well, I just do triathlon. I just wanted to win this race. And I didn't realize like all of this would happen because I didn't really think about the outcome. Like the goal was execute a great race and ideally win a medal, ideally the gold. And then you never think about, okay, you win the gold and then what happens? And it's just like your world explodes. Um, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Your world exploded, but there really wasn't much time for you to like soak it in and celebrate because 
you know, with the pandemic, how it changed the calendar, you had several WTCS races right after. So how did you stay focused enough through all of that Olympic excitement, winning the gold medal, Olympic champion, to have strong races in Montreal and Edmonton to score the points necessary to win that WTCS world championship title just a few weeks after becoming Olympic champion? Yeah, that was definitely a very intense period. Um, Add into the fact that racing in Canada at that time, you still had to quarantine. So that was like super horrible. Um, we had to, you know, we arrived in Canada and we just spent three days in our hotel room and then you could race and then went to Edmonton and also just stuck in your hotel room. Uh, so that was definitely, I was like, geez, I just won the Olympic games. And now here I am like stuck in a hotel room, uh, in Canada. I was like, I don't know, one hand, you know, kind of managing that. And the other hand, you're managing all the emotions of having won and the aftermath of winning, but also trying to, um, yeah, go for a world title. Um, so yeah, I definitely had to dig pretty deep for those two races. I really enjoyed the Montreal format with the, um, super sprint eliminator. I think that's what it's called. The three mini races. I really liked that. A lot of people were, um, kind of against it, but I guess for me, I've done so many sprints in Olympics that to do something so different, especially right then was actually so fun. Um, but yeah, it was super hard. And then for Edmonton, which was the grand final, um, that was probably my most testing race of the year. I was, I was pretty close to, to empty. Um, I think more most emotionally and mentally, and then, um, to kind of get up and race, um, at that level, it definitely, it took a lot from me. And, uh, I, um, yeah, I mean, it, but at the same time, it was it was great that I was able to clinch the world title. Um, and yeah, doing those two back to back, I don't think I would recommend it. Um, <laughs> I don't think I will try to do that again. Uh, but it was pretty special to, uh, yeah, I, I was like the first person to do it for about two hours. And then Christian matched me. So I was like, oh, cool. Thanks, Christian. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it was pretty special. It definitely very intense. And I got back from Canada and I took a week off and I basically just like laid in my bed and watched Netflix and didn't I try not to talk to anybody. <laughs> and Flora, you have, you mentioned a little bit how you have been racing at such a high level and you've had exposure to these high level racing now for really more than a decade. Um, your first Olympics were in Beijing in 2008 and your progression from there has been you didn't finish in 2008 in London, you finished 45th eighth in Rio. And then finally the win that came in Tokyo. Right. So what do you think? Like, and you, you also touched on the fact that, you know, this isn't an Olympic year. And so it kind of is a bit lighter for you mentally. Right. So there's a huge amount that's going on with your career. That's tied to that four year Olympic cycle or five year in, in the last case. Right. So what is it that has helped you stick with the sport throughout such a long time at such a high level and kind of manage that roller coaster of, of riding the Olympic cycle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's always kind of been this Olympic dream. Um, and I mean, obviously, I, I really love triathlon and the lifestyle and the opportunities that it's given me and the people I've met and the places I've gone to, you know, all of that. But yeah, I think it's really just been this um yeah, Olympic dream, to be honest. And um, 
in London. Yeah, I was 45th, 44th. I'd crashed. Um, so that was, you know, a bit of a disaster. And then in Rio, I, at the start of the year, I can remember talking with my coach and it was like, if I finished anywhere between sixth and 10th, that would be like an incredible race for me. And then as that year went on, I was ranked number one in the world. I'd won like the final WTS before the event. And like, you know, I'd suddenly kind of thrust myself into this, um, outside podium, um, person or hopeful. And that was like a whole new, like set of, um, challenges to manage and more exposure and emotion, just everything. I was like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. And then you learn a lot from that. Right. And I joined the race and then I don't know, from there, I was kind of like, well, maybe it's possible to win a medal in Tokyo. Um, so anyway, I guess, yeah, just this Olympic dream has really kept me motivated in there. And there's been many, many lows along the way, injuries where I didn't think I was going to come back. Um, but yeah, I've always had a, a great team around me and managed to bounce back. But yeah, I'm at an interesting point now where I have achieved that lifelong goal of winning an Olympic medal. And so I'm almost kind of at a point of like, well, where to next or like what I don't know what is driving me now. Like what it's, yeah, it's an interesting kind of reflection point. And I think I only really noticed it when I got back here to Stellenbosch at the beginning of 2022, because this is where I start every year of training. And you know, the past two years of 2020 prior to pandemic was an Olympic year in 2021 is Olympic year part two. And so now that I've come back here, and it's like I've achieved the gold. It's not an Olympic year. It just feels completely different. And yeah, I guess I'm just kind of like refining of exactly why am I doing this now? Why do I keep pursuing these goals? Do I go for another Olympic cycle? Do I move up distance? And I don't know. I think for me, it's actually a really nice place to be. I guess I'm choosing to keep racing because like I want to, and I really still love it and enjoy it. And so, yeah, it's definitely... I think a really privileged and unique place to be. And I think one other unique thing about your progression is that you have steadily improved. And I'm curious if you follow running at all. And we just recently saw the performances, American record performances by Sarah Hall and in the half marathon and Kira D'Amato in the marathon. And, you know, those are women who are 37, 38 years old and running the best that they have. And I mean, Sarah Hall, she was a good collegiate runner and, but yet doing her best now and has just kind of steadily improved. So I, I am like curious about your, you know, when you look back at your progression, do you think it's experience? Do you think it's training? Do you think it is just like, okay, going one more, you know, just seeing how, how the next race plays out and then just building off of that? Um, yes, I do follow running and I did follow those two races and I'm a huge Sarah Hall fan. Um, wow. Yeah, she's just amazing. And um, I hope my, she gives me hope because I feel like I have so much like uh, work done. I feel like to keep my body in one piece. So I'm like, look at Sarah Hall. She's 38 doing all these marathons and she's just rocking it. So um, yeah, she's incredible. Um, but yeah, I think for me, it's just a I don't know, consistent years of, of work and maturing as an athlete. Um, you know, whereas I've really gotten, you know, quite comfortable with just, you know, training, recovery, 
eating, resting, repeat, and um, knowing that that's going to be only for a small chapter of my life. And so just kind of like fully investing in that um, and just, yeah, I guess, you know, really buying into it and enjoying that I'm able to, to live this lifestyle. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess over the years uh, I've had, you know, been able to um, bring in more resources um, to use, to focus more on the details, whether that's, you know, running biomechanics, working on my swim technique, I'm working with, I don't know, higher level people that I can implement. Um, I don't know. I don't want to say any training techniques or whatever, but doesn't really make sense. But yeah, just, I guess, focusing on who is around me and my team and bringing in expertise that I think is the best in the world. And yeah, that's really just helped me improve steadily. I think, you know, not focus on making like massive gains and being quite destructive, but just, yeah, slowly, steadily putting in the work and um, yeah, improving year by year. And Flora, we definitely don't want to monopolize too much of your time, but I do want to ask. So we, you know, obviously you're a summer Olympian, but um, you raced in, in Beijing in 2008. So will you be watching the winter Olympics coming up this weekend? I know it's funny. I keep forgetting that the Olympics are happening. And I think that's only because I'm in the Southern hemisphere right now and it's summer. So I can't get my head around the fact that it's like the winter Olympics happening. <laughs> and also I'm from Bermuda. So <laughs> we uh, never, so I think I will try to follow it. I really enjoy watching the snowboarding, um, particularly the half pipe stuff um they're just insane i have no idea how they could do that uh so yeah i think i will try and t tune in if i need to look at the time change and everything and yeah but um yeah it's it, it's amazing that um the winter olympics is able to happen that the fact that two olympic games will i should say fingers crossed successfully occur during this um pandemic so yes and i just wonder if it makes you like nostalgic at all for your time in Beijing but I imagine I mean it's so different it's so different because they have a very different situation with their you know loop and all that kind of thing than you had in 2008 so I imagine it's it's not the same village experience and Olympic experience mm -hmm. no <laughs> I mean I think Olympics are already quite highly stressful and then you add in like COVID and daily testing and not wanting to test positive or have a oh my gosh no that's <laughs> That's yeah. That's not a fun side of going to the Olympics right now. Them. And um, I mean, yeah. I do. I admire the, the athleticism, of course. But Flora, thank mm -hmm. you so much for chatting with us, for helping us reminisce about that incredible, incredible race in Tokyo, and for you know telling us a little bit more, giving us a little bit more insight into your champion mindset. And we're excited to see what whatever you decide is next. We're excited to see it because you seem like. Um, you have, you know what you're doing and you do everything deliberately and well. Oh, cool. Thank you so much. Alyssa, I loved hearing from Flora and you know, I have all the goosebumps. I adore sport and the Olympics and being able to hear someone relive that entire experience of winning a gold medal is just so inspiring to me. So I'm so glad we got to have her on and, and, uh, she told us so much about that whole experience. And I thought it was really interesting how she brought up uh, we brought up um, the camaraderie between the athletes from different countries, even at the Olympics in triathlon. And I, I thought that was unique to triathlon, but I've been watching the Beijing Olympics and I've seen, you know, I think it was the 
you know, slope style snowboarding. And they were all like super excited when the women from New Zealand won and all the other competitors are like doing this mass group hug. And um, I've seen, you know, just these incredible displays of camaraderie crossing, you know, international borders between sports. So I think that's, maybe this is more common than I realize. No, I agree. I think that it makes you want to be an Olympian, like hearing those stories about the camaraderie and like the teamwork and all of that. And I also have to say my very unscientific observation I'm thinking through right here as we, as I'm like scrolling through the Olympians we've had on the podcast, they are some of the kindest like people making time for some of these interviews with us and just being so open to share their stories and like really fun to talk to. And I don't know, I'd be interested in doing like personality tests on these people because I feel like that element of just enjoying community and talking to one another and like learning, sharing that sort of thing must be like a common thread because it is the Olympians we've had are very, you know, different. I think it is like a, sometimes a different experience getting to talk to them and just the, the feeling you get. Did you see Jesse Diggins when what first win bronze and also she was on a Super Bowl ad? I mean, Alyssa, we have interviewed someone who was on a Super Bowl ad. Did I mean, you know that? Yeah, they heard her here first is like all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll end it on that. Alyssa, enjoy your time in Tennessee. Keep us posted on that waitlist situation. And I will look forward to talking to you next week. Bye, Haley. You have been listening to the Iron Women podcast hosted by Haley Chura and Alyssa Gadeski. Iron Women is a production of Feisty Media and is edited and produced by Lindsay Glassford. Head to livefeisty.com to find more podcasts, events, stories, and fresh perspectives. Thank you to our sponsors, Noon Hydration, Zelio Skincare, Orca Sportswear, and Inside Tracker. You can find all websites and discount codes at ironwomenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Alyssa, Amino Co. has been a longtime podcast sponsor, and every time I'm listening to the show and I hear our Amino Co. ad, I'm always shocked to hear how Amino Co. co-founder Dr. Robert Wolf has run a marathon in under two hours and 30 minutes, 62 times. I just can't believe that's a real stat. Me either. It is very impressive, and it gives me a lot of confidence Dr. Wolf knows what he's talking about when it comes to performance and recovery. I actually took AminoCo Heal before and after my recent knee surgery. I've been using Heal a lot after really big workouts as I've started to ramp up my training. And I also use my personal favorite, AminoCo Perform, before and during my hardest sessions. Do you have a favorite flavor? For Perform, I definitely go with the Strawberry Lemonade. It has a really light flavor and a little bit of caffeine that I think helps keep me focused during my really tough intervals. And for heel, I like vanilla. I just feel like vanilla gets me into recovery mode. What about you? The vanilla heel is my favorite too. I find it mixes really well into my post-workout shakes that I make. Wait, what do you put in your shakes? Well, oftentimes just whatever I have in the fridge, sometimes vegetables, sometimes collagen, you know, whatever I have. Summer shakes are way more interesting because it's like I make them cold. But the winter shakes are a little less fancy. 
Do you ever add snow to your winter shakes? <laughs> I mean, I'm going to start doing that now. I don't know. Make sure it's clean snow. I am not quite as fancy. I just add water. It, I think it still works pretty well. But uh, however you like your Amino Co, you can rest assured that in clinical trials, muscle protein synthesis from exercise more than doubled by athletes using Perform and Heal was shown to trigger muscle growth and repair better than other high quality protein sources. Head to aminoco.com slash ironwomen to see very large photos of me and Haley using Aminoco products. Then select your favorite products and use code ironwomen for 30% off at checkout. First time purchases also come with a free gift. That's aminoco.com forward slash ironwomen and code ironwomen for 30% off. Chasing Epic is the essence of the Orca brand. It is about seeking the moments in life that make us feel truly alive and connected with the beauty of the world around us. And let's be real, Chasing Epic is feisty. Orca has been a longtime partner of Feisty, and we work with them year after year because we love their products and their commitment to creating amazing wetsuits made for women. They also supported me on Team USA last year at the One Water Race, which was most definitely also Chasing Epic. With Orca's range of triathlon wetsuits, including Apex and Athlex, you can choose between flexibility, buoyancy, or a combination of both. There's a wetsuit for every triathlete and for all of your epic adventures. And as a feisty listener, you can get 15% off with the code IRONWOMEN15 at orca.com. All right, Alyssa, I'm like starting to swim more again. And I feel like you were swimming a lot last year with oh, with one water. And how did you keep your hair from get, getting so destroyed? I was swimming so much last year. And I used try hard, Kelly, and I still swear by it. They have extensively researched this problem and created a superior vegan, dermatologically tested proprietary blend. Try hard has shampoo, conditioner, body wash, and more stuff. Everything you're going to need for your pre and post swim necessities. I've also seen that top pros like Chelsea Sodaro and Lucy Charles Barkley also praise the effectiveness of try hard. I think it's like definitely changed how good I feel just coming out of chlorine. And we have a code right now too, for anyone who wants to try, you know, try, try hard and stop suffering from dry, itchy skin, having their hair get all, you know, green, which happens to me because mine's like super blonde and get all beat up. You can try any of the Try Hard products with the code 20FEISTY, that's 20FEISTY, for 20% off store-wide at tryhard.co. So that's 20FEISTY for 20% off at tryhard.co. 